without further ado, the amazing, the wonderful, Ken Wilson. <laughs> Thank you. I got some things here. I got a, I got a bowl of dirt for y'all um, on the on the altar. Um, the communion elements come from the dirt. We know the wine and the grape juice and the wheat that makes the bread. So. We're going to give due honor to the dirt from which it sprang. And, uh, you know, uh, Emily and I would do, we kind of come up with sermon series ideas. And sometimes we just, you know, stumble on one together. Sometimes it's my idea. Sometimes it's Emily's idea. And we, she came up with this idea of us, the current sermon, sermon, sermon series that we're titling Earth, Dirt, and Gardens, Finding God in the Extraordinary Ordinary. And when uh, Emily told me not that long ago, I, I'd like to do a series on, a sermon series on gardens. I was like, oh, like inside my head, inside my head, I was like, oh, okay, okay, and, uh, and then also inside my head, I was like, well, the next time I have an idea, I'd like a positive response of Emily, so I'm going to give her a fake positive response. <laughs> But now I've been getting into the series. I've, I missed the first session, and I the second session that Emily did uh, last Sunday. I was like, it was moving me, and then and then I remembered one of my favorite books is a book on dirt, and I got my dirt book out and I started rereading my book on dirt, and I got inspired all over again about dirt, and so today is about dirt. Um, the divine human dirt connection. So we start off with a little. I, 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 uh, I went on a cruise many years ago re regarding climate change with some luminaries, and they had all these different people on it, like famous people. And I could really impress you by mentioning their names. And they were environmental scientists and all sorts of like environmental types, tops types. And they had the the CEO of Monsanto was on the cruise, which is like, if you're an environmentalist, the CEO of Monsanto is like Darth Vader, you know, but he, he, he was, his name was Hugh Grant, not the actor, and he did a little thing because, you know, uh, there, uh, there's only like a few companies who are providing the seeds that provide the wheat for like most of the world. And there's decreasing amount of topsoil. And so they're like, scientists are scrambling to come up with different varieties of wheat because as the climate changes, the, the conditions change more quickly than they were in the past. So they're like all, they're like all nervous about what's going on with the climate, as we should all be. But um, he did this demonstration for like how little topsoil is. So, so this is the earth. This is the, this is the earth. And um, three quarters of the earth is water so that doesn't do much good for dirt so we just take care of the three quarters and we want an apple steve an apple salmon order over there and and then a third a third of the remaining so this is the land on the earth you know like roughly a quarter of the earth's surface is land a third of that quarter is deserts so that's rid of the deserts and then a whole nother third or so is like rocks and mountains and pavement and stuff that doesn't do any good for growing crops at all Whoa. and so what you have left and then topsoil topsoil is like five to ten inches max 
So this book that I'm reading on topsoil, the, the uh, subtitle is The Ecstatic Skin of the Earth. Dirt. The Ecstatic Skin of the Earth. So this is really what we're talking about when we're talking about dirt in perspective of the whole earth. It's, it's this little thing. And for those who've been traumatized by religion or by a pastor in the past, the sight of seeing one hold a knife is probably not very good for you. So I've, I've put it down. I've put it down. This is, this, is, this is the topsoil upon which we all depend. And of course, it's, you know, with climate change, it's shrinking because the deserts are expanding and all that sort of thing. I guess I think about a third of it, a third of it, is is um, used for, is used for feed you know like soy and corn for cattle which is not the most efficient way to feed people it's a pretty inefficient way to feed people so like it's like this and it's getting smaller and and human population is increasing so this is under a lot of strain and it's dirt so I've been thinking lately about my my crappy connection to dirt. Like, I don't have a good connection. I'm a city boy. I grew up in the city of Detroit. I didn't, my mother did the gardening. I didn't even, meaning like the, we had a very small lot in Detroit, and you just had like a little, it wasn't like today where you have like landscaping and all those curves. It was just like the edge of the fence was, you know, and my mom took care of that. I, I, could, I could care less about flowers and dirt. I, I barely even looked at them. My connection with dirt emotionally it was a little bit fraught because one of my jobs was to um, pick up the, the um, excrement from my dog Duchess and so I was the boy so I, I did that and my dad and I we had kind of like a tense relationship over my lack of um, what would you call it um, care and um, focus in this job because I would, oh God, I got to go out and scoop the poop and I'd do that and then I always miss things. And I guess the, one of the low moments of me and my dad related to this chore was he would, you know, he was constantly like, you miss this spot, you miss that spot. He had a really bad day and he said, he wasn't like this generally, but he said, the next, um, the next pile that you miss, I'm going to rub your face in it. <laughs> So, we, so it was a lot of tension over this, and and my connection with dirt was I would take the I would take the little shovel full, and I had to find some some dirt along the edge where the where the dirt was visible, and I had, couldn't dig up uh, you know plants or anything, and I had to find a little bit, and then I would bury it. So like that's my emotional backdrop to this topic of dirt. And you think about how different that is for like, uh, like you know, 10,000 years ago, all our ancestors were hunter-gatherers, right? Which meant they spent, like everybody spent like two or three hours a day rooting around in soil, looking for tubers, looking for, for root vegetables. And so everyone was totally familiar with dirt, totally understood that dirt was essential for their survival or farmers, you know, and farmers kneeling down and picking up some of the soil and saying good dirt and like getting excited about the dirt. Um, you gardeners, um, I'm like, you know dirt and if you've moved around, you know the dirt in the western part of the state is sandy and the dirt around here is clay and you have all sorts of understanding and good feelings about dirt and the fact is we evolve for and from an intimate connection to dirt. And this intimate connection between humans and dirt is actually all throughout Scripture. Um, Genesis 1 credits um, dirt 
with bringing forth life. So we always think of like Genesis 1 is God created, God created. But actually, I think it's in day 3, um, the, uh, it says, let the land, let the earth, let the dirt produce vegetation. That refrain comes like three times in day, day 3. And then day 6, this is the land creatures, in, including the humans, are on day 6. And it's the same refrain, let the land, let the dirt, let the earth produce living creatures. It's like the, the, the life is being generated from the dirt and coming forth and God is just like talking about it in Genesis 1. So dirt is life generating power in the Hebrew vision of God. Genesis 2 really picks up this theme and makes it very personal. I think Emily might have gone over this. I'm using the Robert Alter translation of verse 7 and 8 just quickly here because it shows the human dirt connection. Then the Lord God fashioned the human humus from the soil and blew into his, really that could be translated its nostrils because the human there is androgynous, that no gender has been distinguished, and blew into its nostrils the breath of life, and the human became a living soul or a living, a living creature. So in the Hebrew vision of God um, and humanity, we stand between the dirt and the divine, and we're very closely, intimately connected with dirt. So I've been rereading my favorite book on dirt, the ecstatic, um, static skin of the earth. If any of you want to talk about um, esoteric knowledge about dirt, I would be happy to oblige you. And I just want to read this little section that I found totally fascinating um, from Dirt by William Logan. For more than a century, chemists have been trying to answer the question, what is dirt or what is topsoil? And to this date, no one knows. Every time you try to break it down into its basic components, you get acids of a slightly different nature. In fact, soil uh, scientist Dr. James Rice puts it, it is very likely that no two humus or topsoil molecules are or have ever been alike. And then a little bit later, this is from the introduction, he says, radical disorder is the key to the functions of topsoil. At the molecular level, it may be the most disordered material on earth. Which is saying something. So all this order, living things, our ordered existence come out of this probably the most disordered thing on earth. I guess if you soak dirt in water and, you know, do stuff to it so you can see what's in it, you get a variety of colors. You get blacks, you get browns, you get yellows, you get reds, and you get blues all in dirt. Um, so think about this. I was just pondering the positive view of dirt that you have in the Hebrew Bible many of the, well, I think one of the signs of our, how disconnected we must be in, in the modern world from Mother Nature, not, not to mention God and each other, is how we call things that we find disgusting or morally repugnant dirty. Like, isn't that odd in view of the biblical vision? Like, dirty minds, dirty movies, dirty jokes. We have... We have powerful people talk, talking about immigrants as being dirty and it's always like this dehumanizing kind of thing. It's like this, what is our, what kind of a weird understanding of dirt do we have? In the Jewish imagination, we human beings are God-breathed dirt. 
God is kneeling in the dirt. He's forming us out of dirt and he's breathing us into dirt. And our name is like dirt person. Adam from Adama. So there are many names for God in the, in the Hebrew Bible. And Genesis uh, 1 introduces one of the most common. It's actually a plural and it's uh, Elohim and it's translated Lord or just God. Um, but then in Genesis 2, it says Lord God in the English translation. And that signals that the Hebrew behind that word is Yahweh Elohim. Now, Yahweh, I mean, if I was in a synagogue, I would not say the name Yahweh out loud. It's, it's translated by a different word, uh, Adonai, in, in most uh, Bibles that are they're read by uh, Jewish people. Because Yahweh is like the most sacred name. In fact, in, in, in realms of like magic and esoteric stuff and whatever, uh, Yahweh has a, has a term, it's called the tetragrammaton. It's like this sacred thing. Now the thing to know about Hebrew is all it has is consonants. So it doesn't have any vowels. And, and so they just kind of, when they're translating it, they, they kind of guess about what the vowels are between the consonants, and they use little marks between the consonants. So picture Yahweh as being like capital Y-H-W-H. That's like the most sacred name of God. And because it was so sacred that over time the Jewish people um, treated it with such reverence that it wasn't pronounced. It wasn't, it wasn't uttered. It was like the unutterable name of God. So it seems as though the way it was actually written out was, was forgotten. So we don't really know that YHWH is Yahweh or Jehovah or something else. And scholars have kind of landed on Yahweh, but it's kind of a, it's kind of a guess. It's that holy a name. So when the ancient Israelite hears that it's Yahweh kneeling in the dirt and forming the human from the dirt and breathing into the dirt person, it would remind the people of Israel of the actual formal introduction to Yahweh, which is in Exodus. So you've got to remember when you're reading the Old Testament that it's not like Genesis was written first and then Exodus was written second and, and so on. So we, we first read, if we're reading in that chronology, Yahweh appears in Genesis uh, 2, but the introduction to Yahweh is actually in Exodus chapter 3, and that was our reading today, this morning, uh, Moses and the burning bush. And there's some interesting connections between these two passages. So the passage we read today about Moses and the burning bush, uh, this happens before Moses has become Charlton Heston. So this is before he's like the dude and before he's got the Ten Commandments and all that kind of stuff. Actually, Moses at this stage in his life is an asylum seeker um, from his homeland and in uh, Egypt, where he's been kind of banished for some stuff. And, and he's got this, he got married out there. He's got this father-in-law, Jephro, and he's out there in the Sinai Peninsula. And he comes across a, a burning bush that gets his attention because he notices that though it's burning, nothing particularly unusual about that, that it's just, it, it's not consumed by the flames. And as he approaches the burning bush, a voice comes from the bush, Moses, Moses. 
And Moses says, here I am. That's the way prophets answer when they hear a voice saying your name. And then the voice says, don't come any closer. Take off your sandals. The ground you're standing on is holy. Later, Moses says to the voice, after the voice says more things and gives Moses some directions, tell me your name, by the way. Tell me your name. Like, who am I talking to in there? And the voice utters this sacred name, Yahweh, which means, again, nobody quite knows exactly what it means. It's a very mysterious meaning. It could be, I am who am. Like, you know, hi, what, what's your name? I am who am. Uh, or, or I will be what I will be, or what exists, um, exists from me. It, it's, it's really not that clear what Yahweh actually means, other than it's very like primal and mysterious like that. Um, so the Bible is first and foremost and always a mystical book. And that's what that's what we we kind of missed that way of reading the Bible, especially if you grew up in a fundamentalist or an evangelical background or more conservative way of regarding the Bible as kind of like a manual, a rule book, or here's how to live your life and all that kind of stuff. You probably missed the fact, the more important fact about the Bible, which it is a it, it's a mystical book. And that's how people engage the Bible is as a mystical book because the Bible was, um, was formulated by people who were having experiences of the divine. And they put those experiences into words. And this would be a classic example of that. Like someone experienced God like this and, and was part of putting this, this story together about Moses and the burning bush. Now in mystical visions... The truth is perceived like in its essence rather than simply described or even less asserted. So when someone's having a mystical experience of something, they're like having a sense of the thing in its essence. And it's always a little bit beyond words. Um, the, the author of this book says the truth when really perceived and not simply described is always a wonder. The truth, when really perceived and not simply described, is always a wonder. And that's when you know that your perception is kind of moving toward the mystical, when there's that sense of wonder and awe about what you're perceiving. Um, so Exodus 3 is a classical mystical vision like this, and the voice speaking from the burning bush is clearly the source of all living things. Um, so I was doing a little research about this. Living things. There's two equations that describe living things, it turns out. I didn't know this. Um, there's the equation of photosynthesis, which is how plants make food out of sunlight, carbon dioxide, and water. I think Adam gave me a nod there because, do you teach this in your, in your, in your, you're in social studies though, right? No, math. Oh, you're math. Okay. Oh, math and science, okay. If I'm wrong, just mention it later quietly. But it, um, so there's the equation of photosynthesis, <laughs> right? And then there's the equation of combustion, Equa different equations of combustion, or it's uh, sometimes called the equation of burning. And the equation of burning describes how living things turn the power of the sun um, stored in plants into heat energy and to fuel their motion. So this is a big deal. 
I guess the equation of burning or composite, uh, combustion is a hydrocarbon reacts with oxygen to, to generate water, but always heat. So this is what's going on when dirt is being formed. There's always heat that is being generated because there's uh, that kind of thing happening. So in the burning bush, Moses, in a sense, is perceiving how all living things are burning, are combusting. And this is probably why fire is such an important image of God in the Bible, because God is the source of all living things. And all living things, in order to be alive, they're combusting, they're burning. An equation of combustion is going on and heat is being produced. But there's one more part to this vision, which is, this is the founding vision of Israel, the burning bush. You'd have to say it's right up there with so many other founding visions. The second part of the vision is important. Take off your sandals. The ground you're standing on is holy. The ground, the dirt you're standing on is holy. So there in Genesis 2 and in Exodus 3, which are kind of like a dual introduction to Yahweh, it's as if God is saying, as I felt the dirt making you, I want you to feel the dirt. It is holy as I am holy, as you are holy, dirt person. They're all connected in the Hebrew vision of God. Our connection to dirt and our connection to the divine are connected. So, they say, I've been listening up on stuff like this as I get older, things you're supposed to do to keep from like having a bad fall when you get older, breaking your hip and ending up in the nursing home. You're supposed to take your shoes off and walk around on the bare ground in your bare feet. Why? Because the, 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 the uh, sense data that comes through the bare foot um, expands the region of your brain that has to do with balance. So when we're just walking on flat surfaces with like cushy shoes, our brain is getting less data, less information from the ground. And so our, our, our feet are sending it up and it's less. And so a smaller portion of our brain is focused on what's going on with our feet. So if you want to prevent falls in your old age, walk around in your bare feet on the, on the like more rough ground and your brain will get better at deciding what's going on down there and you're less likely to fall. So it's important to have a human connection to the dirt, to the ground. Um, and you, you uh, gardeners are onto something because you know that when you're rooting no pun intended, around in the dirt with your hands, you sometimes feel happy or you feel more relaxed or you feel more calm. And that's part of the... We've got, how, many, how many gardeners are in the room, would you say? I'm just curious, how many people garden? That's pretty good. That's, that's a, yeah. If you want to like uh, learn some gardening, look to someone who's raising their hand and you can uh, talk to them about how to get into gardening. But gardeners know that when you're rooting around with your hands in the ground, you feel happy and relaxed. And it, in fact, 
you're getting a release of dopamine, the reward uh, system of the brain, and you're getting some endorphins going through your body, which are the happy chemicals. Morphine is an endorphin, you know. Endorphins are good. They make us feel good. And we have that feeling when our hands are in dirt. This is like a little sign from the universe. Dirt is good, and it's good to be connected to it. So my final on this is the University of Michigan did a study like they do. That's how they earn their money. Um, and they had a group of students, naturally, the guinea pig students, um, who one group took uh, a, a regular walk, like an hour walk around campus and downtown Ann Arbor. And another group took a walk through the Arboretum. If you've ever been to the Arboretum, it's kind of like Central Park on steroids, and, but except it has hills and there's a river running through it. It's, it's a beautiful place to take a walk. And wouldn't you know that, of course, they studied the spit or the whatever, the students after they were doing this walking and whatnot, and found that the people who walked in the city had more stress hormones going on in their system than the people who are walking in nature. Well, duh, that's just intuitive. We all know that walking through nature, like in a park or through a forest, can be much more relaxing or calming than walking through the city because you're walking through the city and like you're alert for you don't want to get run over and what's going on here and there's sirens and there's you know we, we take walks because we want to get outside of our heads right we don't want to just be stewing in whatever drama is going inside of our heads over and over and over so we want to get outside of that the word ecstasy is is outstanding like getting out of yourself interestingly and that's what we want to do when we take a, a walk. And so walking through nature, apparently, there's enough stimulation. There are things that you notice, but it's a much more calming kind of stimulation. So it's enough to get you out of your head and whatever drama is going on inside of your head, paying attention to something outside of yourself, which, which calms us, but it doesn't trigger our alarm system. So they actually came up um, with this thing in the study that two to four hours a week just being in a natural setting like a garden or a park or in the woods just like sitting there is equivalent to two to four hours a week of exercise yeah some of you are perking right up when I said that two to four hours a week in a natural setting whatever you're doing is equivalent to two to four hours a week of exercise so, this is giving us some information how we can improve our contact with dirt. If you're like dirt impoverished, like I am, um, you can uh, tend some houseplants. Actually, tending houseplants is a decent way to get connected with dirt. Like, I never tended houseplants. You know, my mother was the, you know, I'm raised in the 50s, gender, you know, blah, blah. Um, my, my first wife, Nancy, who passed away, was the gardener in the family. She had, had the house plants after she dies. Like, oh, crap, I got to keep some of these plants alive. And so I started paying attention to a few house plants. And I've kept the bird of paradise alive for seven years. Thank yeah. you. You know, but that means I have to water it and I have to feel the dirt to see if it's dry or wet and need. And I notice, oh, it's a plant. It changes over time. You know, like, whoa. And there's things you can do to kind of take care of it. And it's just a, and it, oh, it needs my regular attention. 
Like the thing I like about AA, you know, if, you, if you're a recovering alcoholic and you get a, a sponsor, they say, and, and if, you're not, if you're not currently uh, with a partner, they say, you know, it's probably best for you not to try to find a partner right now, like focus on your recovery. And the, the first thing you do to prove that you're ready to, for romantic relationships is you got to take care of a houseplant for like a year. <laughs> you know, like if you can keep a houseplant alive, then you're showing that you've got the kind of loyalty and consistency and focus from something other than yourself in order to be a better romantic partner. So there's something about let us not despise the day of small beginnings tending some house plants. I now have uh, four house plants that I'm tending. Um, yeah, and I, I look at them every day now. And I have, I have a northern pine, and I had the crazy idea to, to uh, put grass in the dirt in the pot around the northern pine. So I cut the grass every day. The grass experiment is not working out that well. Grass gets funky around the northern pine or I guess something like that. But I'm touching the dirt. I'm looking at my plants. So tend some houseplants. Um, plant and tend a garden. This, is my, this was my goal for this series. When Emily said we're doing a, a series on gardens, I had been thinking about starting a garden for like the past year. And the way I work on things, as if it's not obvious, is I have to like fall in love with the idea first. So I give myself time to fall in love with the idea. And I do that by talking about it or just paying attention to things on TV or whatever about the thing. And I feel like Emily's sermon, like last Sunday, and she just took me over the line and I'm, I'm in love now with the idea of starting a garden. So I'm going to start a little, uh, I have a neighbor who has a, it's a raised bed garden in the front strip, you know, where the, the city owns it. He got it from Burpee Seed Company, and it's, it's uh, like a box, and then you put dirt in it. And I, said, I could handle that. It's like four feet by four feet. I'm going to get me a Burpee box, and I'm, and I'm saying this by way of accountability. You're my higher power. But before 2019, is over if there's not a burpee box on the front where my house is and some many of you have been over to my house then i have failed i'm gonna i'm gonna plant a nancy wilson memorial garden my late wife i'm gonna put a little little brass thing on there nancy wilson memorial uh garden and I, i'm thinking i'm i'm gonna put like um i'm gonna put uh, i've always wanted um, the, like the grass thing that comes up, you know, where it's like a plant, but it's grass. I used to say to Nancy, why don't you plant one of those grass things, you know? And she was like, go plant your own thing, you know? And I'm like, if you want to plant a grass thing, plant a grass thing. And I just never got around to planting a grass thing. Now in the Nancy Wilson Memorial Garden, I'm going to show her, I'm going to plant a grass thing right in the middle. And because I live in Ann Arbor, I'm going to plant some milkweed around that. You know, milkweed, right, for the, for the butterflies. And then I'm going to plant uh, annuals. I know what an annual is. I just, yeah. I'm a gardenias and um, mums. Mums are good for the, for the, I've got it all inside my head. I'm in love with this idea. I'm sharing it all with you. It's really going to happen. I believe it. It's on my bucket list. So I'm going to plant and tend a garden. And you might want to think about it too. And then the third thing, of course, is let's just spend a little more time outside in nature, in parks or woods. Amen. Here ends the sermon under perhaps the best sermon you've ever heard in a church <laughs> on the topic.
of dirt, I dare say. Okay, let's take a little time for quiet reflection and meditation. Do something that we often, often do is to maybe just begin by getting yourself relaxed and comfortable, taking a couple of deep breaths, maybe in through your nose, out through the mouth as you get comfy in your seat there. And um, stimulate your imagination to picture yourself in some kind of a natural setting. Maybe something that you're familiar with. Could be a garden, could be a park you like to go to, could be the woods. And then situate yourself in that picture, in that scene, whether you're sitting, you might be standing, you might be walking. And just take the first minute of the meditation to settle into the scene. So focus on the sights, maybe the sounds, maybe the feel of the ground under your feet or the warmth of the sun. Let's take a minute for that. And now, um, whatever scene is in your mind's eye, just um, imagine yourself becoming gradually, maybe subtly aware of God with you. So God could be sitting or walking next to you, could be in front of you, behind you. God could be like the spirit in the air and a breeze coming over your face. Just imagine becoming aware of God with you in that scene. with a short prayer. God, open the eyes of our hearts to your presence surrounding us in the outdoor cathedral of this world. Amen. Amen.